I want to welcome you again to uh, Door Creek. For those of you up north, welcome. Classic service right here in this place. Good to be together. If you're a guest here, my name's Mark, and you're catching us. Third message into our series called True, working through John's letter, 1 John. So today's message is about staying the course. It's about true faith that perseveres. The, the nature of true faith is it, it hangs in there, it endures, it perseveres. So I, I found this amazing story. Maybe some of you have heard of this guy. I've never heard of this guy. His name is Cliff Young. And in 1983, he did something really, really amazing that reminds us of what it means to stay the course, to persevere. He entered into this race. It wasn't like any marathon or Ironman competition that we've ever heard of. It was called the uh, Westerfield Classic, and it went from the Westfield Shopping Center in Sydney, Australia, and it went 544 miles up to the Westfield Shopping Center in Melbourne. To that point... The, the record for the course, that race, was about seven days. And there were some ultra marathoners, as they called them, who were there, some pros, like a guy named Siggy Bauer. Don't you love that name, Siggy? Siggy Bauer, who just set the world record for a thousand-mile race. Are you kidding me? Down in South Africa. So here's Cliff Young next to Siggy, but if you would see the two, you'd go, one of these two guys doesn't seem to fit. Like, who is this guy? Siggy's 61 years old. He's a potato farmer. And he's wearing running shoes for the first time in his life as he lines up at the start line. The press are all curious about this guy. To be honest, if you and I saw it, we just start kind of chuckling and wonder, what's this guy doing here? How long is he going to make it? So they asked him about it. You know, how have you trained? He said, well, actually, um, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up on a farm, 2,000 acre farm, 2,000 head of sheep. And when there was a storm, we didn't have horses, we didn't have tractors. So my dad would send me out to round up the sheep. And that sometimes took me three days. And I figured if I can run after sheep for three days, what's another couple more days? I should make it five days to Melbourne. How'd you train? He says, well, recently I've been just chasing my dairy cow back at my farm in my rubber boots, my gum boots. And uh, so he shows up. He's at the, at the starting line and he's got a long sleeve shirt on and he's got some baggy pants. Doesn't look anything like a running outfit. And he's cut little slits in his, in his pants so that they'd be a little cooler, a little more ventilated. And, and off he went, and, and he had this really interesting kind of cliff shuffle. They called him Cliffy, and they were giggling kind of when he left the starting line. But at the end of the first day, no one was laughing. Everybody was like, really? Because old Cliff Young didn't go to sleep when the other runners went to sleep. He just kept running through the night. And by the end of the first 24 hours, he was in the lead, and he never lost the lead. And the story started to build 
And the villagers started to come out to see who this cliffy young guy is. And by the time he made it to Melbourne, he needed a police escort because there was a throng who descended there in Melbourne. And when he broke the tape, he broke the record. Man, did he break the record by two days. He ran it in five days, 14 hours, and 35 minutes. Remember, a potato farmer, 61. It was just short of running four marathons a day for five days. Are you kidding me? Now, does that just make you tired? Does that make you like, hey, I'm 61. (laughs) This is pretty cool. I don't know what it does, but it is an amazing feat that this guy could pull it off. His closest competitor was nine hours behind him. And I don't even remember if it was Siggy. I think it was Siggy. The guy who ran a thousand miles and broke a world record. Nine hours behind him. And when he finished, he found out that there was prize money. He didn't know. He wasn't running for the money. He just knew he could run, and he wanted to try it out. And so they gave him the $10,000 check, and he turned around and gave $2,000 to each of the five other runners. Didn't even keep any of it himself. And here's this great quote at the end of the race. I like to finish what I start doing. I like to see it through to the end, to the best of my ability. And when I read that, parts of that quote made me think of Jesus, quote, Jesus said this, Matthew records it in Matthew 10, 22, but everyone who endures to the end will be saved. So we're in a race, and it's a lot more like Cliffy's race, an ultra marathon. We, we often say it's a marathon, not a sprint. Well, it's more than a marathon. And some of us know that really well right now. It's like, man, it's hard. It's uphill all the time. Some of us are ready to throw in the towel. Some of us have just kind of, we used to be running in this race right alongside of Jesus. And we just kind of veered off a little bit. And that was a few years ago. And seemingly, man, I'm a long way from that place of doing life and running the race with Jesus. Some of us, if we're honest, we recognize that um, we've been out of it for a while. And others of us who are, quite frankly, in a rough spot where we're ready to just say, man, I didn't sign up for this. John's writing to a group of people who he knows are in a place where the dangers are real, the temptations are strong, to just move away from Jesus, to not finish their race. There were false teachers. There was these wrong affections. There was these counterfeit spiritual experiences. And all of it was threatening their walk with Christ, which one writer puts like this, a long obedience in the same direction. A walk of faith with Christ, a long obedience in the same direction, Eugene Peterson. So the question then is, what does it take to finish well in faith? 
Now, it's really interesting to think about who our heroes are in life. And I've noticed that my heroes have changed as I've aged. And I'm noting that the people that are my heroes today probably wouldn't have been 10, 20 years ago. The people who are my heroes today are people like Malcolm Cronk, one of my mentors. He was my pastor when I was a, a kid at Winneka Bible Church. He's my brother-in-law's father. He turns 100 this year and up until last year was regularly preaching. Come on, man, Malcolm. He's the guy who told me a couple of years ago, Mark, I feel like I'm just graduating from kindergarten. So honest. Just a good, godly man who's finishing well. My uncle Awald, 104 years old, who loved Jesus till the day he died. Those are my heroes. And what I'm aware of at this point in my life that I wasn't when I was younger, when I was seemingly stronger was, man, it's, it's not a guarantee. I've lived long enough to know there's a lot of who I thought were just really good people who just checked out. They just kind of walked away, threw it all away. And I realized that just because we're longer along with Christ in our journey doesn't mean that it's, it's going to be all that much easier than to just finish well. I'm aware of that. You need to finish well. What's it going to take? What's it going to take for you to finish well? You're engaged in the race. What's it going to take for you to finish well? And man, you've been slip sliding away as the song goes. What's it like for you where you go, man, I have totally, totally fallen off the wagon. What's it going to take? Well, it's really interesting to go through kind of a rather complicated half chapter and realize in the midst of the complexity, there's kind of some simple meat and potatoes here. What these people need and what we need are leaders who encourage us, leaders who speak truthfully to us. They give us clear warnings about present dangers. They sound the alarm and say, be careful, watch out. That stuff will hurt you, will mess you up. We need that. Not only do we need encouragement and warnings, but we need reminders of the things that God has given us that help us, the resources to stay the course. And at the end of it all, we need more encouragement. More encouragement. So grab your Bible and let's dig in to 1 John chapter 2. We're the second half of the chapter. We're picking up where R.D. left off last week. Verse 12. 1 John. So look at this. If you're new to the Bible, it's way in the back of my Bible, all right? Way to your right. If you need to use that table of contents, always feel free to do that. We're towards the back. This is Jesus' closest friend, John, who's writing this letter to Christ's followers. 12, reading through verse 14. I'm writing to you, dear children, referencing the church, the children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, the mature in faith, because you know him who is from the beginning. That is Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 1. I'm writing to you, young men, those who are younger in the faith, because you've overcome the evil one, the enemy. And he repeats the cycle. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. 
I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Christ. I write to you young men because you are strong. Why are they strong? And the word of God lives in you because the word of God lives in you. That's why they're strong. And you've overcome the evil one. So the encouragement. The encouragement to stay the course. It's very, very important that we hear this word of encouragement because there's some of us that need to be reminded that through Christ, we have forgiveness. We're forgiven. They needed to hear that. And what happens when we forget that we've been forgiven, when we allow our feelings of guilt and the regret and the remorse that we have is we're maybe still dealing with the consequences and we're still working out in our minds, how in the world could God ever forgive me for what I've done? That that has the uncanny ability to take us out of the race. It paralyzes us as we focus in on our guilt. We're off of Christ and what he's done on the cross and we need to be reminded we're forgiven. That's where he starts. You're, you're forgiven. You've been forgiven. You've been forgiven by Christ. You know Christ. You have a relationship, a close one with him. You've overcome the evil one. You know God because you know his son. You're strong and you've overcome because... You're centering your lives on the word of God. Don't live in the past if you're going to finish the race. Not the past of your mistakes, but the past of God's grace where he sent his son to die for the junk of our life and the things that we can still feel guilty about. Don't believe the lie that there are things that we could have done that God could never ever forgive that there's stuff in our life that somehow the death of Christ on the cross isn't sufficient for that you're forgiven you've got a relationship you know the father you know the son you are strong and victorious by the grace of God and I was thinking what a great reminder for leaders to have before us what a great reminder as we raise a family, our children, as we are an aunt or an uncle to children, a small group leader to students. What a great reminder that people need to be reminded of the reality of God's grace and forgiveness, that we can have a relationship. I, I think of the times where the natural part of me as a dad is you see the report card and you focus on those couple of places where, hey, we could get better here. I know you could do better here. That never happened to you. You've never had those thoughts. I get that. I mean, well, it's, it's important for us to, to point out wrong and point out their need for forgiveness and to acknowledge. That's really important. But it's also important to acknowledge that, you know what? We're sinners too. And isn't it great that God forgives us? To keep going back to that. Isn't it great that he wants to have a relationship with us and we can have that through Jesus and we can be strong and have victory because of his word in us to celebrate that, to rest in that. That's where he starts. Great words of encouragement. Do you need to hear that today? You've been forgiven. And what Jesus did for you on the cross, it's enough. It's enough. And he wants you to move on with him 
and not let that separate you from him and his mission in this world. Encouragement. Well, you'd think if all those things were true, then they'd be really good and wouldn't have to worry about these next things. I mean, man, if they've got all these things down and they're encouraged by these realities in their life based on who Christ is and what he's done, then why would they need the warnings? Because, man, we're weak. We are weak without Christ. So he gets in to the, to the warnings. All right, verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world. That's the first warning he sounds. Don't love the world or anything in the world. He says, hey, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. You can't love the world and love the Father. They're mutually exclusive loves. You can't do that. For everything in the world, what is everything? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. Like a morning fog, they're gone. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. So I don't know what happens to you when you hear verse 15. Do not love the world. When I heard verse 15, the first verse I'm thinking about is John what? 3.16. For God so loved the what? Yeah, so I'm going, wait a minute now. What's, what's going on here? All right. So when John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world, he's saying that God loves the people of this world. When John is saying, don't love the world or, or anything in the world, what's he saying? Don't love the world's system. Don't love the world's values. Love the people. Don't embrace. Don't make those values your values. What are those values? Well, he starts to unpack that, doesn't he? And the first thing he does is say, you got to watch your affections. You got to watch your affections. Make sure you love God more than anything else and don't let anything else in any way rival that love. You cannot have two competing loves. You cannot do it. Jesus says this very thing in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one, love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So he talks about three things that help us understand what is this world thing that we're not supposed to love. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So the lust of the flesh, cravings of our old nature, of the world system, the temptation to take a good thing and to make it an ultimate thing. Let's use money, for example. Money is not the root of all evil. It's misquoted all the time. Money is the root of all evil. No, that's not what the Bible says. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil, right? So let's use money for case in point. It's not evil. The world says this, though, about money. Money is the key to great life. You want to be happy? The more money you have will help you be more happy. You want to feel successful, the more money you have so you can get more stuff will make you feel more successful. You want to be secure? Well, then have more money because money can get you out of a lot of hard spots. Money's it. It's the key. You need to get it. That's the world's view of money. That's why Jesus talks a lot about money. 
Because money is the easiest rival little G God for us to turn to and put our trust in. If I just had money here, then my life would be different. If I, I feel good about the future because look how much we've saved. I, I feel good about my future health condition because we, we've got a lot saved up for one of those. I, I feel, see, it's easy to trust in it. And so when we talk about honoring God with our wealth, we, we unpack a lot of things. We're acknowledging everything we have is from him. We're acknowledging as we give a portion back of what he's given us, it's representing our whole life. So the tithe always represented the whole, the first fruits, the whole crop, the tithe. You have my whole life. We give in response to God's love, but we're giving too in such a way to remind ourselves and to declare to God, my hope is in you. This doesn't make sense naturally. This doesn't make sense by the world's system and values to give money back to you, to give money to other people. I'm talking to a friend this week and I'm telling him about that 100 pounds of rice that I gave Pastor Matthew, our pastor friend from our sister church in Monrovia. And remember when I said, how long is it going to last? And this is a guy who has one bowl of rice with his family a day. And I'm thinking, man, we just bought him three months of rice. He said, well, it's probably going to last me a month. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, Matthew. Just, how's this going to work? And then he told me that I, I gotta give it, I've got to give it to people who have need. When people in church come, I'm going to give it to them. And when I was talking to this guy, he goes, man, I could never do that. I could never do that. And the world system trains us to do this, to do this. That's the world system. But when we love God, we realize the love of God's picture is really different, isn't it? It's this, it's this. So how do we know we're loving the world? If I'm doing this with money, I'm loving the world more than I'm loving God. He goes into the lust of the eyes. So by the way, so our financial records will kind of help us understand how we're doing in this area of loving the world. Lust of the eyes, well, we can think of sensuality, the love of beauty without the love of goodness. We love beautiful things, but we've jettisoned goodness. And so we take beautiful things that don't belong to us and we crave them and desire them and want to possess those things. And those things begin to rule us. The world says, you're free to do anything you want with anybody you want, anytime you want. That's the beauty of the world system. You're free. And so we go out, yeah, I'm free, I'm free. And then we find ourselves freely pursuing things that can't deliver on their promises. And then all of a sudden we find out, but there's something that we're not free to do anymore. And that is we can't stop doing it because it's ruled us. And when desires for sex and sensuality to be an example of the lust of the eyes, not the only, but it's an example of that, when those rule us, well, then guess what? We're loving the world's values. We're loving the world's values. So maybe it's the history in our computer. Maybe it's the record of the things that we've been viewing that give an understanding of, am I loving the world? And then there's this whole matter of pride. 
just in case any of us are feeling good at this point, he kind of covers us all with this pride thing. Boasting in what we have and what we've done. Somehow deluding ourselves that the reason we have these things and have done these things is because we work harder, we're smarter, we save more. Thinking somehow we are the bottom reason we are doing well. In Deuteronomy, God warned his people. He said to them, you're going you're to move into the promised land. Milk flowing, land flowing with milk and honey, right? You're going to get into houses. You're going to live in houses. You never built those houses. You're going you're gonna to make wine from the grapes of a vineyard that you never planted. You're going to draw water from a well you never dug. And your danger is you're going to forget God. And you're going to think, here's what he says, you're going to say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth from me, for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirm his covenant. So the focus moves from God and his honor and gratitude to, wow, aren't I clever? Look what I've done. The focus goes from God to me, to his grace, to all the reasons I'm succeeding. When I take credit for my successes and blame others for my shortcomings, I'm loving the world. When I hear myself say, when I hear myself think certain things about the poor, about someone who's struggling, about someone whose kids seemingly are just completely just a mess, walking away from Christ the whole nine yards. When I talk to a waitress, when after waiting 20 minutes for that customer service representative, and now I'm talking to the customer service, that, you know what? Those conversations, those thoughts, how I'm sizing up people, how I'm comparing myself to other people, oh, that's just huge window into proud heart. Proud heart is not connected to Christ. Proud heart is connected with the world. That you know, the theme of the world song, you know what this theme song is? I did it my way. I did it my way. And I can't tell you how many funerals I've been to, and I've heard that song, and I cringe. But then I realize, you know what? I probably play that tune a lot more than I think. Pride. So, you know, I don't know what's kind of pricking you here, where God's working in your life, but there's a warning here. And it was a gracious warning, and it was a clear warning. It was a strong warning. There's things here. There's affections in my heart. There's a world system that can easily start dominating how I think and where I'm going. And that stuff is fire. It's destructive. It will ruin your life. I was thinking about the dynamic of salt water. If you and I were shipwrecked in the middle of an ocean and we didn't have fresh water, we know, we know that'll be the key to how we survive this, if we can survive it long enough. We don't have fresh water. And so we're looking at all this water around us, and it looks like the real thing. 
but you know you're not supposed to drink it, right? Do you know why you're not supposed to drink it? Because it actually doesn't quench your thirst. It makes you thirstier. And the more you drink leads to your death. And here's the wild one. And you know how you die? You die of dehydration. You've been drinking, but you die of dehydration. And that's this mirage that the world has. We, I got salt water. This is good for you. Look at it. Look at it glisten in the sun. It's so beautiful. It feels so refreshing. Take it in. Take it in. And it destroys. Destroys. So there was these warnings of these affections. And then he gets these warnings about false teachers. Read down in verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. So he's reminding them what time it is. It's always good to remember what time it is. And the Bible tells us ever since Christ came and ascended into heaven, we're in the last days. And John says, we're in the last hour of the last days. What does that mean? In our vernacular, we're in the 11th hour. It's really close to what? To Christ's return. As you have heard, it's the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Before Christ comes, there comes this Antichrist. Daniel speaks of him. Paul speaks of this man of lawlessness. Jesus talks about these false messiahs that will come and do miracles to lead people astray. This Antichrist is coming. You've heard he's coming. He's not here yet. But you need to know that even now, many Antichrists have come. He's talking about the false teachers, verse 26, who would lead them astray, chapter 4. These false prophets, verse 1. These antichrists have come with the spirit of antichrists in them. This is how we know it's the last hour. You want to know what time it is? They went out, these false teachers, and those they led astray. Remember, there's a church split there. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Well, that's scary. So you could be in church and not belong to God's family. You could be worshiping here today and John's saying, you, you may not be in God's family. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained. Because that's the nature of true faith. It endures. It perseveres. It shuffles along like Cliffy Young, resting our hope fully on Christ. They're going, they're leaving, showed that none of them belong to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, from Christ. And all of you know the truth. These false teachers are saying, there's another anointing and there's more truth. He's saying, no, you have an anointing. You know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is what the false teachers were doing. They were denying that Jesus is the promised Savior. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So there's false teachers. And these false teachers' MO is they're, they're in the church and they're trying to lead people astray. Their goal is to move us away from Jesus. Their goal is to say, 
you're, you're missing out. There's actually deeper knowledge. There's greater experiences, this anointing, this initiation experience. We don't know what it was, except that John calls it counterfeit. Verse 27. He says, look at, look at down at verse 27, second half of the verse. But as his anointing teaches you, speaking of the Holy Spirit, as the anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit. So they were dealing with lies and deception. They denied who Jesus was. They did not recognize that he was the son of God, that he was both God and he came in the flesh, that he was fully God, fully man. They rejected that. They held out this counterfeit uh, spirituality, this anointing experience that they hadn't had when they have that. Oh, 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 man, when you get that, let me tell you what, you're going you're gonna to have a, a spiritual boost that's going to give you, wow, new power. You need that experience, and you need greater knowledge. You're kind of on the bottom shelf here. There's, there's a lot more for you. Let, let us take you deeper into greater knowledge of the truth. And all of it was wrapped in lies and deception with the intent to lead him astray. And so just as he warned him, watch out for this world with its values Watch out for those friends that have got those values and you're listening to it and you're buying it. Watch out for these false teachers. One, one's external. They're out there in the world. We're, we're thinking, okay, we know there's danger out there. The other's in the church. The greatest danger facing the church in the New Testament throughout the New Testament as you read the letters to the churches is just this precise thing. False teachers that say, you need Jesus plus. Jesus is great, but he's not enough. And they don't even have Jesus. They've got some figment of their imagination of who Jesus should be. So they got the warning. Both barrels, right? Don't love the world. Watch out for these false teachers. So what do they need to be reminded of? That they have the resources. They have the resources to fend off the world's temptations. They've got the resources to fend off the deceit of these false teachers. What do they have? They have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. They have the truth, God's word, and they have each other. They have the family of God. And he unpacks that in the following verses. So the anointing in verse 20 is speaking about the giving of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes the first time to the church in Acts 20, it's as Jesus promised. You stay in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And the Spirit comes on the 120 followers of Christ, and it says it was like these fiery tongues. That's, they couldn't describe it. The best we can do is it looks like fiery tongues. They look like tongues and look on fire. And the next thing we know is they're talking. And they're talking in languages that they don't know to people that are being told now about the wonders of God. And there's some great things going on as people hear about God and his glory and his son. And they come to faith and thousands begin to follow Christ. But from that day on, the giving of the spirit always comes when there is faith. When there's faith. So Paul will write about having heard the word of truth and believing this gospel of salvation, that you were included in Christ and you were marked at that time when you believed the message about God's love for you in Christ. You were marked in him with a seal. What is this seal? It's that you belong to God. And he wrote his initials, so to speak, in your heart by placing his spirit. 
You were marked in him with a seal. The, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit of our glorious inheritance. We receive the Spirit. Sometimes the Bible calls it baptism of the Spirit. We've all been baptized into one Spirit when we place our faith in Christ. And even our faith is a gift from Christ. And what the Spirit is, is Christ's Spirit. That's who we have. And when we receive it is at the point of salvation, of placing our faith in Christ. And he washes away our sin and he indwells us by his Spirit who is the deposit guaranteeing what's to come. And that is we don't do life with Christ through spirit, through his spirit, but one day face to face in a new heaven and a new earth. So why does he give the spirit? Well, for assurance. His spirit, the Bible says, it, it communicates to the heart of my heart that I belong to God. I'm his child. His spirit convicts me of wrongdoing. His spirit leads me in the truth and helps me understand God's word. His spirit is always shining the light on Christ. If you want to know more about the spirit, John unpacks it in chapters 14 and 16 of his gospel. He says, not only that do you have the spirit, but you have the truth. You have the truth. They're telling you you don't have it. You have it. Stay on it. You have God's Truth, Christ's spirit, Christ's word. The word is all about Jesus. Jesus said it's all about him. And if we aren't in the word and digging in the word, we are vulnerable to false teachers. If we don't have the fullness of the spirit, and the Bible talks about when it comes to the filling of the spirit, we have it, but we leak and every day we need to keep on being filled with the Spirit. And when I'm not full of the Spirit, guess who I'm full of? Me. And when I'm full of me, you don't want to be around me. When, when we're full of the Spirit, then what, what are people around? The overflow of God's grace, Christ, through me, in me. When I'm not filled with the Spirit, then you know what's happening is I'm operating out of a deficit reality. And when I'm in a deficit position, I need, I need to be filled. So we'll even use that phrase, won't we? Man, I'm on empty. I need to have my tank filled. Or that person, real, that really filled. I get it. We get it. But what we need to understand is when we're not filled with the Spirit, we're going to be looking for fullness and very likely be running here and there, maybe for that buzz, maybe for that experience. Man, if I get that, then I know. Whew, I'm going to be good. And then there's God's people. And he talks about God's people as he continues on in verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So you want to stay the course? Here's what I know. You need leaders in your life who will encourage you. And as a pastor, I want to grow in that. You need encouragement. Here's what I'm aware of. Life is hard. You come in here on the weekend. You're doing life. It's hard. You need encouragement. We need encouragement. We need to be reminded of what we have in Christ, what he's done for us. We need warnings. We need to love people enough to say, you know what? I'm, I'm not talking about 
judgment here. I'm just talking about that, that, that's going to, that's, that's not going to be good for you. We don't even think about, it never gets wiggy when we've got a little child that's about to run across the street. We just grab their head, don't do that. When they're coming up to hit the hot, whatever it is, the stove, the, the portable heater, don't touch that. We don't even think about, no, I don't want to hurt your feelings. We just go, that's not good for you. And we don't, we shy away. We need people who love us enough to speak the truth and tell us, man, that's not, we need to have people in our life that we give permission to say, would you speak into my life if I get goofy and I start losing my way and I start running after the wrong things? We need that. We need that. We need to be reminded that we have Christ's spirit, Christ's word, and Christ's church, the family, wonderful, awesome resources that are key to you and I finishing the course, the race, staying the course. So the beautiful thing in the Bible is God really does wrestle with the why. And right now the question would be, well, why is that important? If God's a loving God and he's, he's full of grace and mercy, so I don't finish. Can I just want it all still work out? Why is this a big deal? Why is it a big deal? So look at verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. And John will write about his coming in chapter 4, verse 17. And he'll call it the day of judgment. And you go, well, I, I, don't, I don't believe in that. Well, you just need to know, Jesus talked a lot about the day of judgment. A day where he'll stand before him and give an account. And he's saying, I want you to stand confidently before God. And I want you to know that you can have confidence in your standing today before God and one day before God. And the reason you can be confident has everything to do with your faith in Christ. And by the way, he ends up by saying, and if you have that persevering, enduring faith in Christ, then guess what? If you know Christ is righteous, then you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Then go ahead and do what is right. So Cliffy said this, I like to see it through to the end, to the best of my ability. Forgiveness, a relationship with God, Victory, that's not about our ability. The Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the church, it's not about my ability. It's a gift, and we receive that. So today I'm hoping that you're strengthened for what lies ahead that might knock you out of the race. I, I, I hope the love and mercy of God calls you back, and you go, you know what? I'm drinking salt water. I'm drinking salt water. And you go, dear God, forgive me. Come home. Let's pray. Lord, would you encourage your people by your spirit through your word? Would our hearts not be proud and hard and thinking that we don't need to heed a warning? Would we hear it and heed it? And would we take hold of Christ, your spirit, your word, your people, and may we be a church that is cheering each other on to stay at it, to keep going, to not give up, to pick each other up with grace and mercy to say, come on, let's keep going, let's keep going. Until you come, 
may we be found faithful. In Christ's name for his glory. And all God's people said, amen.